Welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. This time, our subject is producer Val Luton. Born in Russia in 1904, Val Luton moved to the United States in 1909 and went on to become a writer of all kinds. He wrote novels, newspaper and magazine articles, and even a little pornography. He then got a job at MGM working for the legendary producer David O. Selznick, also doing a little bit of everything. In 1941, he was hired away by RKO to head up their fledgling horror unit, and it is here that Luton showed what he could do. Stuck by the front office with meager budgets and lurid, attention-grabbing titles, Luton realized the only way his songs could genuinely scare people was to play upon their deepest fears of uncertainty, of death, of the dark. Not only were these universal fears, but they were cheaper to put on screen than vampires and werewolves. With an eye for talent, Luton would hire a murderer's row of directors, writers, and editors, and in just a few years produced some of the best horror movies ever made. Cat People, I Walked with a Zombie, The Seventh Victim, The Body Snatcher, to name just a few. And despite never taking a credit other than producer, all of these films are unmistakably the work of Val Luton. Unfortunately, at times Luton could be his own worst enemy, battling the higher-ups with a zeal that was as self-destructive as it was principled. After horror movies fell out of favor at RKO and many of the people he had hired moved on to huge Hollywood careers, Luton left the company and tried his hand at other studios producing dramas, comedies, and even a Western. Here to discuss Val Luton's final film as producer, 1951's Apache Drums, is fellow Luton fan and storyboard artist, Gabriel Hardman. Hi, Gabriel. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you for doing this. Uh, as I've said, as I said to you off air, I don't know anyone who has even seen Apache Drums, let alone likes it. So uh, I'm, I mean, I, I'm acknowledging this is a very, very niche episode of Fade Out. Not that they all aren't, but this one's even more so. But nevertheless, I appreciate it because I love the work of Val Luton. And I think it's really interesting that of all the people we've already covered on this show, actors, directors, we're talking about a producer. You would think a producer would not have a definable sort of auteur stamp on his films, and yet Val Luton does. Yeah, I mean, I think that that really speaks to the complexity of how films are made and the way and, you know, and how you understand them from the outside. And so often, you know, whoever is contributing to something is not necessarily, you know, clear from just reading the credits. And But with Luton in particular, he... Uh, he brought something to, I mean, I think he did quite a bit more than, you know, than what you would think of as a producer in the, in the classic era of Hollywood. Although at that point, probably producers had more, um, had more clout and had more say than they do now to an extent, or, you know, in the last many years. But, uh, I, I think that he, um, you definitely see his stamp on it and the, and the films while, you know, uh, through those that cycle of RKO horror movies, you can you can see the uh, you could see the influence of Jacques Tourneur, uh, who he worked with on Cat People, I Walk with a Zombie, and uh, uh, and The Leopard Man. And mind you, these all have these silly sounding titles, right? But, exactly. Uh, but the whole thing is that the you know he he took uh, a, a a job where they only had one hundred fifty thousand dollars to make every movie. <laughs> And, uh, and like, and he was assigned to the titles that were these silly, you know, sounding titles and then made these nuanced literary, you know, uh, deeply felt movies that, uh, that were also, uh, scary and, uh, and atmospheric and visually striking, uh, you know, thanks to 
you know, directors of photography like Nicholas Musaraka, who went mm -hmm. on to work on uh, work with Turner on Out of the Past or, mm -hmm. you know, like incredible people that he brought in. And you can see those people's stamps on them, but they're all clearly Luton movies at the same time. Yeah, uh, the, there was a box set that came out, I don't know, 15 years ago on DVD, and it's, you know, the, the horror film, the, basically the films of Al Luton. Now, it leaves a couple films out, and we'll talk about those uh, presently. But, but I mean, in terms of his horror film output, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it really was sort of necessity was the mother of invention because, yeah, as you said, he had no money to spend. But he was given these horrible. I mean, imagine trying to make a movie called "I Walked with a Zombie." Like, what? Yeah, I yeah. Do what I walk. Curse of the Cat People, for Pete's sakes. Right. Um, and yet he realized that, yeah, okay, I can't compete with. First of all, he wasn't inclined to compete with Universal. He right. just thought those movies were kind of silly. Um, yes. But even even if he had wanted to, how could he? How could he come up with a makeup that's gonna, you know, that's gonna create a monster that's gonna be anything uh, as exciting as the Frankenstein or Wolfman when you've got Jack Pierce over there creating all these things for Universal on a hundred fifty thousand dollar budget? There's just right. no way. So he decided, okay, I'm gonna go the other way and play upon shadows and the dark and and this this you know obviously death, which you know is a universal fear. That's a way that he can he can convey these things with spending very little money, and he was able to again. He, he co-wrote, or at least did the final drafts of virtually all of his films, which yes. is why part of the reason they have this stamp, even though, from what we understand about his history, he was not a heavy-handed producer, uh, unlike a David O. Selznick, who I just mentioned. I mean, there's stories of David O. Selznick literally on the set of his movies yes. telling his directors what to do. And at one point, I think it was on Duel in the Sun. I think it's Gregory Peck that tells that story where he was, I think that's he was, right. he was telling the director what to do. And that, that, I think it was a King Vidor. And King mm -hmm. Vidor was like, I quit. You know, you do it yourself then if you just yeah. want to direct this movie. But Val Luton didn't do any of that. He hired, as you mentioned, uh, Jock Turner. He gave Robert Wise his first directing job. And Robert Wise. I mean, my yeah. goodness. And 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 that was you know that was on a on a film where uh, where they were basically assigned to work with Karloff. Everybody yep. involved was afraid that they were going to end up just making you know schlocky you know being forced into making schlockier uh, you know late Universal type horror movies. And it turned out that they were a brilliant combination. Uh, the on the Body Snatcher, uh, you know, uh, Bedlam, Karloff, Isle of the Dead, yeah. yeah, Isle of the Dead, and Bedlam. Karloff gives some of his best performances in these movies, and like, and you. Really really see how great an actor he was yeah he was right it's it mentions in one of the books i've only read one book about uh luna i know you've had the you've read the other one we'll get into that in a second the fearing the dark yes. by edmund banzak which is a great book it's really deeply researched a great read but yeah he was assigned boris karloff and of course val luton is like i don't want to do universal and now i've been assigned the number one universal boogeyman uh what am i gonna and he was apparently really scared that that boris karloff was kind of this hack and he never met the man and then he met him and realized that karloff was very literate very smart very kind kind of guy and very interested in doing the best job he could when he was given decent assignments and yeah, yeah they ended up turning out really great i mean it's the kind of thing where karloff was yeah he was willing to play one of the frankenstein doctors in one of the lesser frankenstein movies because it was a paycheck but when he was offered something like the body snatcher he really turned in a marvelous performance. He 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 would care when he needed to care, sort of. Yes, I mean, and you see that all through his career when things, you know, when when he's given good material, even down to one of his very last films, Targets, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, I love that movie. You know, he 
uh, he's he was very ill, but he had some great material and he rose to the occasion. Oh, it's a, I, that movie's more every anybody I can always tell them if they've never seen Targets, go see Targets. It's hundred percent. Yeah, movie. it's so, great. So I want to ask you when did you when did you first see a Valut movie if you can remember and what point if you again if you can remember did you start cluing into who's this Valut guy like I'm seeing some commonalities here who's this Valut guy Well it was I mean in a certain way it was kind of served up to me it wasn't uh it, it was I wasn't piecing it together I um I moved to New York to go to art school when I was like late teens and uh and at Film Forum uh downtown you know they would run series of uh, classic films and I saw that was where I first saw a, a big festival of film noir and was introduced to like uh, most of the movies that have made a huge impact on me and then a little while later they had a Val Luton festival and, oh. you know a program of Val Luton, <laughs> wow. right so like I the way that I saw these movies was all in a row on 35 millimeter you know oh. in a theater right so, um, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so in, including, including the ghost ship, which at that point had not really been seen, uh, since its release. Right. Right. So, so like they, they were all just kind of laid out for me, but I, uh, but it was also an amazing experience to, uh, you know, to, to, to get them all that way. So, uh, uh and I became a huge, uh, Luton fan after that. And, and I, and I, I'm, I'm always, uh, it's the atmospheric horror and the, the kind of thoughtful, somewhat artsiness of, of things. Like, that's what I love across the board and stuff, right? <laughs> so, um, so these, these hugely appealed to me. And, uh, and, and I, I, and it's, it's so easy to see his, you know, what he's bringing to this compared to a lot of the other stuff from the period. I love all the universal horror movies. Yeah, me but, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, but like there, Luton was just doing something a little bit different. What a great way to be able to see all those movies and also very convenient in that most of Luton's movies are like 68 minutes. So I mean, yes. you could, you could, oh, yeah. you could, you can power through three movies in yeah. an afternoon and not feel exhausted. It's not like you're sitting through it's like the greatest triple feature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I mean, I love the Avengers movies, but I don't know if I want to see three of them back to back to back. Cause after, you know, that's yes, seven hours of sitting eight, in a chair. Hours, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, Oh my God. That's more. Now, do you have a particular of the horror ones? Do you have a particular favorite? I think my favorite is Seventh Victim. I mean, it's it's not, I don't know that it's, it's not exactly the most stylish of them. It's, it was not, uh, you know, it wasn't directed by Turner, but it, there was, there's just something about that movie that feels like it's saying a lot and saying dark, interesting things that another movie at that time would never be saying. And I think it really speaks to the value of, not only genre and being able to talk about things that you would never be able to talk about in a, a like a straightforward a picture, but it, it speaks to the uh, the freedom you have by making a tiny little B movie and not spending that much money. So people just aren't aren't paying attention to it in the way that they would otherwise. You find over and over again when uh, when reading about uh, movies like this that. Uh, particularly, you know, maybe not quite as much now, but in the past, people would approach them like, you know, well, this is really good for a B movie. Like it, mm-hmm. everything would always be fil- is always filtered through these kind of, you know, preconceptions. And it's like, no, this is actually the reason we're talking about this is because it's good and yeah. because it's something that's lasted. And what you're not talking about are a bunch of vacuous 
big budget A pictures from the time that nobody really cares about anymore because they don't have that extra layer of interest to them. Yeah, I mean, The Seventh Victim, I covered that over on uh, Film and Water. And my, my favorite detail about The Seventh Victim is just the the screenwriter when he was doing the research, because it's about cults, for anybody who yeah. hasn't seen it. It's about a devil cult, in uh, a Satan-worshipping cult in New York City. And the screenwriter wanted to get some research, and the uh, RKO like research department hooked him up with real Satanists to talk to them. I like what a, like, and what a resource to have in old timey awesome. Hollywood. I'm like, can I talk to some Satanists? Yeah. Here's their number. Go talk to them. Like, right. Okay. And, great. You know, and studios used to have great libraries and stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. uh, the, I mean, even, you know, I, I was working on a movie in the late nineties at Fox at the uh, 20th century Fox. And, and, you know, even then I was able to go down to the library there and go you oh, know, man. have them pull a bunch of stuff, reference and everything. You know, none of that really exists anymore. But, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason that Luton was able to get away with what he did, as, as, uh, as Gabriel just mentioned, is that he worked with very low budgets, worked with very little money. Uh, his Cat People movie was a massive hit. That really I mean, that was his first film. And that really proved to RKO that you could spend not a lot of money and make a fortune. I mean, it made tens of millions of dollars in the 19, in 1940s money. Right. Uh, and so that was really what, and that they, then they allowed him because his budgets were so small to really experiment. And he went and said, I walked with a zombie and then the leopard man and the seventh victim. And then they even commissioned a sequel curse of the cat people, which is the most tangentially, tangentially related to cat people sequel imaginable. It features some of the same characters, but it's not even a horror film. It's really a fantasy film uh, dressed up with a horror title and it's a film that has gone on to be uh, discussed among child psychologists about how to deal with childhood trauma and I love all the one of the uh, the, the little notations in the Bansack book where it says that a lot of child psychologists went and found this film and said my god it's Marvel what's it doing with that awful title right. and it's like well that, that's the only reason it got made is because it was right. called Curse of the Cat People it wouldn't have gotten made otherwise but Luton was able to constantly sort of fly under the radar over at RKO, even though his studio superiors didn't like his sort of uppity pretensions. And one of the things that Luton, I, I, I referenced this in the intro, is that he was at times his own worst enemy mm-hmm. uh, and that he liked to challenge authority, sometimes for its own sake. Uh, there was a, another mention in the Bansack book where he talks about that he had this purple tie that he thought was the ugliest thing imaginable. And he thought if he wore it to meetings and you didn't comment that it was an ugly tie, that you were like this vulgarian who didn't know any better. <laughs> and so he would wear this purple tie as kind of like just a way to F with people. And if nobody said anything, he was like, oh, this guy's a moron. You know, it's like, come on, Val. What are you, <laughs> like, what are you 10? You I, know? Cannot, I can't tell you how deeply I identify with this. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, and then apparently at one point, career, uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, at one point, uh, somebody from Universal, a guy named Jack Gross, uh, went over to RKO, and even the name bothered Val Luton. And apparently, according to an anecdote by Robert Wise, he couldn't even say Jack Gross's name without contempt, and he would say Jack Gross. You know, <laughs> he would always like underline. And but then on the other hand, he was incredibly loyal. I mean, loyal to a fault. And there is a point where they talk again, they talk about it in the Bansack book, where he was, I think it was after uh, the Leopard Man, I believe, he was offered to move up to the A unit. He was, yeah. they said, okay, these films are successful. He can, he can prove that he can spend very little money and get a huge return. 
and we're going to bump you up to A pictures. And he, the seventh victim is going to be an A picture. It's going to have an A budget, A star. And, you know, back then, that was a big deal. There was A pictures, there were B pictures. Nowadays, it's, I don't think it's quite that way. It's pretty much all the superheroes at this ball franchise. Yeah, I just... Nowadays, either you're making an independent movie for $100,000 or you're making a studio movie for yeah, 200000 right. Yeah, you're making Fast and the Furious 12. I mean, there's I mean, no in-between yeah. in the, in the um, industry anymore. But back then, that was a big deal. And uh, Luton said, well, fine, I'm going to do – I'm going to, we're going to do Seventh Victim as an A picture. But my chosen director is a new guy, Mark Robeson. And no one knew who Mark Robeson was. And Mark Rio always said, were you crazy? We're not going to make an A picture with an untested director. And they said either fire Robeson and stick with A's or you're going to stay stuck in the B department and you can use Robeson. And Luton stuck with Robeson, which is astonishing. I mean, a Hollywood producer actively sabotaging kind of his own career a little bit to stay loyal. And also, I mean, I'm sure he was wisely realized I'll do better not attracting attention to myself by staying under the, again, staying under the radar. But I mean, that's, that's extraordinary for someone yeah. well, to do. But he would also lose control by by them assigning a bigger director, right? Right. I mean, right. so, you know, like I mean, it's both things. It's about it's about the loyalty of it and it's also about trying to get what his idea of this movie was on screen, you know? Yeah. And then unfortunately that kind of came back to haunt him a little because after RKO as I mentioned, the horror genre kind of ran out of steam in the late uh, the mid forties, RKO specifically kind of got out of the horror business and Luton's chief defender up in the company. I think Charles Kerner was his name left. Yes. And Luton was sort of uh, adrift. He went in, he went in to a, with a production deal with Mark Robeson and Robert Wise, who had since gone on to huge careers already. They were up and coming guys. Robert Wise had done champion with Kirk Douglas. That was a huge hit. And uh, it, that didn't last. Apparently Robeson and, and Wise like cut Luton out at some point. Yeah, um, and they also did it in a very uncool way. I yeah. mean, like, they, they basically just sent a messenger over to tell him he was done. Which and, is, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, awful. I mean, look, I, Robert Wise had a huge career and everything. There are a couple of, you know, there are a couple things from early on that are not so great. I mean, he was the, he was the editor, for, he was Orson Welles' editor, and he was the editor on Magnificent Ambersons, and he's the one who ankled to the studio and made all the cuts that right. destroyed that movie. <laughs> you know? And, you know, and then here, a couple of years later, he's screwing over uh, the guy who gave him his first directing job. I don't know. Look, yeah. The way this business goes, everybody is, you know, everybody's got skeletons or whatever. But there, but those, those are, those are a couple of memorable, uh, iffy things for Robert Wise. Yeah, I generally don't. Uh, I mean, I've read enough books about Hollywood that I don't gasp anymore yeah. when I read about some treachery because it's like, well, what's you know, that, that's the usual story. But when I got to that part where where Luton formed a production company with his two, the two people whose careers he handed, you know, he gave them careers and then they turned on him. And I was like, wow, guys, that's, that's really something. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Um, Before we get to Apache drum though, of course, Apache drums, uh, there are two other movies I wanted to mention. Luton did produce two non-horror films, which are impossible to find a costume drama called Mademoiselle Fifi and a sort of, uh, uh, ripped from the headlines uh, movie called Youth Runs Wild. <laughs> I have not seen either one of those movies. They are almost completely unavailable. You've seen at least one or both of those. Movies. I've seen both of them, but it was literally like 30 years ago. The I found uh, VHS copies of them like soon after I had seen the, the horror movies. And um, 
the and honestly i just don't even remember them that well anymore you know i mean it, it was you know but i my memory is that you know youth runs wild was less uh, less interesting mademoiselle fifi is basically just trying to make something more like a kind of classy movie uh, that would be more of a, a mainstream movie than a than a horror movie and that it doesn't quite work it stars Simone Simone from right, fat uh, people, you know, right. people and uh, and it's and it, it, at my memory of it is that it was sort of a well-mounted movie that didn't work that said I was like 19 I would like to watch this as an adult you know yeah and, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. see see how it played now yeah, I've never been able to get a hold of them. I can't find them on any format. I mean, even if I could get a VHS, I don't have a VHS player anymore, but yeah, I would almost be willing to get one just to see these movies because I'm so fascinated that he had this chance. By the way, Mademoiselle Fifi is Robert Wise's first solo directing credit. He took over right. on Curse of the Cat People, but that was after taking over from another director. That's his first film is this obscure yeah. movie. And so after Luton uh left oh by the way, the one other detail I do want to mention from the Bansek book, which I love, is that apparently at some point during the early 40s or the mid to mid 40s uh jack gross or somebody at rko said well these universal is having a great luck with these monster rallies you know we're putting frankenstein in with dracula and the mummy <laughs> we're gonna do that for val luton we're gonna do a monster rally movie and nobody told luton that they were going to do that and uh in the book and again in the uh, the bansack book the author himself even says when i read this i really doubted this was true i i did this this seems so improbable that they thought val luton would go with such a crass commercial gimmick that i doubted it nevertheless i found a piece of pre-production art that promises that and he reproduces it in the book and it was a movie supposedly going to be called they creep by night which was going to feature cult members and cat people and zombies and leopard men and just they basically just took all of like val luton's first four or five movies and put them in a blender and made this poster and of course the film never got made but it's like and the the bansack says i can't even imagine what val luton's reaction must have been when he saw this thing because it's just so antithetical to anything Val Luton. Was it is, <laughs> but it's also like if you think about you know what what the actual Val Luton movies are like, that movie with a, a mashup of all these quote unquote monsters would mostly be people you know uh, you know uh, artists who are uh, you know who are, are are desperately wish that they had had a better career, brooding on you know uh, <laughs> you know on existentialism while the uh, you know uh, while every once in a while. Uh, you know, a bus, you know, uh, um, you know, pulls up in front of somebody and to scare them in the middle of the park. Like it's, what would that even be? It's still just a bunch. I mean, there, there aren't any monsters in these movies. It's still yeah. just a bunch of like mopey people, uh, you know, sitting around. <laughs> Somebody wanting to kill themselves. Yeah. I mean, what yeah, is there to, you know? what is, what is there to talk about? And I uh, say that with a hundred percent affection. This is a, like, oh. I love that about those movies. I wish that movie existed. I really do. I mean, it would have been awful for Val Luton to produce it, but I wish I could have yeah. seen it. And by the way, there is an inadvertent Val Luton universe because the character that uh, George uh, Sanders plays in Cat People, Dr. Judd, appears in The Seventh Victim, and he's Dr. Judd there too. Right. Uh, so it's actually um, Tom Conway. It's his brother. Oh, Tom uh, Conway. I'm sorry. Brother. Not yeah. George Sanders. Yes. No, Tom they are yeah. brothers. But yeah. They are brothers, um, yes. The, but uh, yes. The, yeah. Dr. Lewis Judd. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and uh, his, uh, his famous book, The Anatomy of Atomism. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Tom Conway, the budget George Sanders. Is yes, he is. <laughs> that is exactly what he is. But he's still great, and he, and I oh, love yeah. him that. And but in in uh, true, like you know, Val Luton, you know, the you can't actually track how he could be the same guy from one movie. No, to I mean, Seventh Victim technically takes place before Cat People because of what happens to I Dr. Judd does, at the end of the movie. But in Seventh Victim, he references something that sounds yes. very much like <laughs> he's talking about Cat People, even though he dies in Cat People. So it just, it, it makes, but I love it that it doesn't fit together in that way, you know? The VLCU, uh, the Val Luton Cinematic yes, Universe. Yes, exactly. They're and way ahead just, of Marvel. I have to just mention the depths of my you know, Luton nerdiness here because like a couple of years ago, I started making like a graveyard that to go out uh, in front of my house in the yard uh, for Halloween. And, uh, and so I make, I make these like really, uh, you know, kind of, if I do say so myself, very nice, very like naturalistic looking, uh, uh, you know, gravestones out of foam. <laughs> and I put characters from each Val Luton movie. Uh. <laughs> Right, so like I have one where uh, that's for uh, Dr. Lewis Judd, and I uh, and I engraved in the foam, you know, and then painted them and sealed them and everything. But like I engraved the entire um, quote from the Anatomy of Atavism. Oh wow! Of cat people or whatever, and uh, and then I have one for like basically all the other movies, a character who died in all the other. Movies. Oh, Valoon would have loved that. It's it's he so would have dorky but i uh I, i'm i'm a big fan of it ah uh, yeah i mean absolutely oh my god yeah and by the way everybody uh, we have one i keep finding extra things to talk about before we get to apache drums if you're ever wondering uh about val luton about how maybe what did he have any ripples out in hollywood the film bad and the beautiful with kirk yeah. douglas directed yeah. by vincent minnelli which is an a picture he's a he plays a struggling producer who is a signed a low budget movie called doom of the Catmen. And there's a whole scene where him and his erstwhile director, played by Barry Sullivan, are stuck trying to figure out how to make a movie with these shitty cat costumes that they're handed, which I love. There's a great scene. It'll look good. It'll, it'll, it'll look good. Uh, and they figure out, like, how are we going to make a movie out of these terrible costumes? And it's it's Kirk Douglas's character who realizes if we just keep things in the dark, that will make people scared. And so it is totally a, a Val Luton reference. And you got to realize... That movie was made in 1952. Luton had only died the year before, so I mean, yep. good lord, talk about timely! No, absolutely. And it's it's Batman Beautiful is a great movie. It's I mean, he's it's a very much a composite type movie. I mean, Val Luton is sort of one of the characters yeah. that yeah. that he's based on. But there's also like one of the greatest scenes about making movies in that where uh, um, where Kirk Douglas is you know kind of to the point of Val Luton not wanting to be assigned an A director who would then you know. Uh, not necessarily care about the material the way that he did the there's there's a scene where uh that you know after um in this you know in this world the uh uh kirk douglas's producer character kind of screws over the director that he came right. up with and you know when he he's assigned this bigger director uh there's a confrontation scene with them on set where uh where uh 
Kirk Douglas pulls him aside and, and <laughs> says, you, you know, you're directing the scene like it's a climax. And if every scene is a climax, then it's, you know, then the movie is nothing. And which is actually like one of the greatest pieces of advice for uh, for storytelling like you could ever get. Because, I mean, and I say this all the time that like, you know, if everything has impact, nothing has impact, you know, it's, right. you know then things are just flat. So, you know, being able to play, uh, you know, play the the ups and downs and the nuances of scenes is enormously important. And uh, so I recommend The Bad and the Beautiful as well. That is a great movie. I love in that, in that scene where the director says, to be a great director, you must have humility. And I'm like, really? Is that the, <laughs> is that the thing that directors are known for? Is yeah, humility? Not, not, not in my experience. But, uh, <laughs> of all the traits that you have to have to be a director, humility is not one that I would think of. But yeah, that is a, that is a marvelous movie. The few times I've, I've run into a, a director with humility, it's not been a good thing for the production. <laughs> So. Good, good, good to know. Good advice. So, all right. So, uh, one again, I keep trying to get to Apache Jones, but there's so much to say about Valuton. So, after RKO shut down, he went back to MGM and tried to produce movies there. He produced a drama called My Own True Love, which basically went nowhere. Then he moved over to, I forget the studio, but he went to another studio and he produced a comedy. A romantic comedy called Please Believe Me. Again, that went nowhere. Another moment where Luton could have uh, been assigned, could have had uh, better fortunes. He was assigned, uh, offered an A-list actress. I'm forgetting the name of the actress, but he insisted on going with Deborah Carr, who at that time was relatively unknown, but he stuck with Carr. Uh, again, to the film's sort of detriment, and the film went nowhere. And then, uh, finally, he was handed a Western. And here we are, finally, Apache Drums, this right. is at Universal, though. This is Universal. Yes. Universal at this right. Point. His old enemy, Universal. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's over Universal. And he's handed this Western, and it's, it's, it was originally called War Dance, later changed to Apache Drums, which I think is a better name. Uh, it's based on the book Stand at Spanish Boot by Harry Brown. I have never read that book. I don't imagine you have. I have not. No, no I haven't <laughs> imagined anyone knows what that, that book is. But uh, he was handed this Western. Um, and uh, I'm going to get into the cast and the crew, but let me get into the, the first of all, let me get a little bit of the plot synopsis here. Uh, again, it was released in April of 1951. Uh, in the desert mining town of Spanish Boot, New Mexico, gambler Sam Lees, played by Stephen McNally, shoots and kills another man, claiming that he acted in self-defense. Mayor Joe Madden, Willard Parker, order, orders Leeds to leave because he no longer wants men like Sam in his growing town. Reverend Griffin, Arthur Shields, a Welsh minister, convinces Madden that the dance hall should also be closed down. Happy to leave Spanish boot, Betty Careless, what a great name, played by Thelma Stevens, the dance hall's earthy proprietor, sells her property and prepares her assistant, Jehu, played by Clarence Muse, and her various female employees to catch the noon stagecoach to Silver Springs. Before he leaves town, Sam asks his sweetheart, Sally, played by Colleen Gray, to go with him. Torn between her love for Sam and her desire for an honest and upright husband, Sally reluctantly decides to remain in Spanish boot. Along the trail to the next town, Sam discovers that the stagecoach has been attacked and the dance hall employees brutally killed. Just before he dies, Jehu tells Sam that hundreds of Mescalero Apaches have reappeared from across the border and begs him to warn the town. Frightened, Sam returns to Spanish boot but realizes to his horror that because of the distrust of him, neither Madden nor any of the other citizens believe his story. However, when a stagecoach full of arrows arrives, the citizens begin to worry and send a young man to the nearest fort for help. The next morning, a local resident named Chacho discovers the young man's mutilated body in the well, and the citizens, afraid to drink the tainted well water, wonder if they will all die of thirst. Their concern does not extend, however, to Pedro Peter, played by Armando Silvestre, 
a cavalry scout who, because he is an Apache, is forbidden by law to drink liquor. Sam decides that because Madden refuses to act, he himself will lead a party of men to fetch water from the river. On the way home, the party is attacked, and Sam and the minister try to hold off Indians while the others escape. When Sam's bullet strikes a chief, the Apaches withdraw, their voices joined in a keening that echoes across the desert. Trudging back to town, Sam and Reverend Griffin see horses approaching. Believing they are about to die, Sam confesses that he risked the lives of the other men in the party merely to shame Madden. The horsemen are actually cavalrymen, but after Lieutenant Glidden arrived, congratulates Sam on having shot Chief Victorio, an Apache prophet, priest, and war chief all in one, Madden arrests him for having given liquor to the Indian. That night, a large party of Apaches attacked Spanish boot. The townspeople took refuge inside the church, but Glidden points out that the Indians can easily complete their attack by scaling the church's many elevated windows. After a long wait, the terrified settlers hear the Apaches approaching with drums, flutes, and song. Now, there is more plot to even to get into, but I don't want to because I don't want to spoil this movie. Uh, this is a terrific Western, and it is a terrific Val Luton Western. Uh, so when did you first, what was the context of how you saw this movie, Gabriel? This is the latest one I saw, and it was only a couple of years ago. Uh, it, for for a, uh, I just stumbled on it on Amazon Prime, I think. And uh, for, for a while, it was available on there. It's not anymore. Unfortunately, it's uh, not all of Amazon Prime, yeah. Yeah, and um, the... And it and it's been it was a movie that I had read about because I was obviously you know very interested in Luton. I'd read the books, and yet everything you know for the most part it was sort of everything I read about it was sort of dismissive. You know, it, it didn't. Uh, uh, and I so I went into it with very low expectations and was like, wait a second, this is a Val Luton movie. You know, this isn't <laughs> right. like it's not, and it it doesn't feel like some lesser thing that, you know, he, that he, his name was just attached to and other people ran rush out of him. It very much feels like a Val Luton movie. And it's, uh, you know, it, the, the right, I know you're going to get into the credits, but the writer is, uh, this guy, David Chandler, or credited writer, but Luton apparently co-wrote the script. And, uh, and it's, there is a, a level of kind of nuance to this that is not what you would expect out of like a B Western, certainly, but at the same time, it is in the in the world of of a kind of shift that was going on in westerns at the time with uh, movies like Winchester seventy three and the and the series of movies that Anthony Mann directed with James Stewart that kind of are uh, have a kind of almost noirish quality to them. They're about. Uh, there, there's a lot of ambiguity in the characters and grayness in, you know, what they, uh, what, how they behave. And, and, and it's basically, it's just, it's not the white hat, black hat sort of Western thing. And I think that so much of the time people approach genre with these really, uh, with narrow ideas and they bring their preconceptions to it instead of, uh, instead of just taking the movie on its own terms. And I think if you take this movie on its own terms, you realize this is actually a really great movie. Yeah. Yeah. When I had first heard about it, it was completely unavailable. And then I don't even remember how I saw it. I really can't remember, but it, it you know, hear about it that it's a Western. I'm like, Matt Luton making a Western. That seems like a, of an odd fit. And then it yeah. heard that it was in color. That's even odd. I can't even picture a Val Luton movie in color. And I thought, right. even then, I thought that's interesting. A 1951 Western in color. And you know, uh, for people that uh, whose knowledge of movies only goes back a certain certain uh, time, 
you know, you think um, there's a lot of horror movies out there, you know, like when you go through the, your streaming services and you go through like Prime Video and you're looking, you're like, God, there's like a thousand horror movies I've never heard of. These look, these, they look like so much like junk. There's so much of it, cr- you know, cranked out. And you're like, that is nothing compared to how many Westerns Hollywood made from oh, like yeah. the 20s into like into the mid 60s. I mean, there the amount of Westerns that were made that if there's any genre that was probably more cookie cutter. Uh, it was Westerns. It seemed like that the Hollywood, that the, the American people had an inexhaustible uh, thirst for Westerns. And so the idea that you would even do something a little different, and as you talked about, like Anthony Mann was doing these, or um, uh, Bud Bedecker, they were doing these kind yeah. of interesting, different movies. And this thing, it's got a cast. Let's talk about the cast a little. It's, it's mostly people that the average person has never heard of. Sam McNally plays Sam Leeds. He was in films like No Way Out. He was also in Winchester 73, Criss Cross. Colleen Gray, the leech woman herself, plays Sally. Uh, she was in other movies like Red River and Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Willard Parker, as he plays, plays Mayor Joe Madden, he was in movies like The Earth Dies Screaming, Waco, and Kiss Me Kate. Arthur Shields, who plays the Reverend, he was in The Quiet Man, National Velvet. He was in My Own True Love, uh, produced by Val Luton, as I just mentioned. James Griffith plays Lieutenant Glidden, who I keep thinking uh, is uh, Lee Lee Van Cleef because he looks so much right. like Lee Van Cleef. He's not Lee Van Cleef, but man, it looks like him. He was in films like The Killing, The Amazing Transparent Man, and Spartacus. And I love his detail on his IMDb that his two films in a row are The Amazing Transparent Man and Spartacus, which means he went from working with Edgar Ulmer to Stanley Kubrick. Back to back, which is really, that's got to be a notation in anybody's Hollywood career. Clarence Muse plays Jehu. He was in movies like Hitchcock, Shadow of a Doubt. Car Wash. <laughs> He's in Car Wash. The Black Stallion. Thelma Stevens plays, as I already mentioned, the wonderfully named Betty Careless, one of the great names in, in any movie. She was in The Fountainhead, The Scarlet Empress, Harvey. Amando Silvestri plays Padro Peter. He was in The Batwoman, the Mexican film. Uh, he was in Wrestling Women versus the Aztec Mummy, oh, two, oh. two two mules for Sister Sarah. As of 2017, still working. The guy's Whoa. 90 years old. He's still got <laughs> credits. Good for him. And then probably the most famous name of anybody here is James Best, who plays Bart. <laughs> he was in Winchester 73, The Killer Shrews. But, of course, most people know him from the Dukes of Hazard. I think I know him from The Killer Shrews, but sure. Okay, <laughs> okay fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Um, this film was directed by Hugo Fragonese. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last Fragonisa, name. Fragonisa, I think. Fragonisa, maybe yeah. too. I've never heard it said out loud. He has films, uh, directed such films as Death Ray of Dr. Mabuse, great title, to Cameron Knight's Black Tuesday. He was married to Faith Domergue, who, of course, appeared in This Island Earth and was the, the paramour of Howard Hughes at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned the screenplays by David Chandler. He has films, uh, films like You Can Never Can Tell, Tom Oak Trail. Again, this is a, an uncredited rewrite by Val Luton. And then the cinematography was by Charles Boyle, who uh, was nominated for an Oscar for Anchors Away. He also did the shot films like uh, Old Yeller. And then two of his other credits are Stand at Apache River and Battle at Apache Pass. So Apache, good word for Charles Boyle. If you, you have an Apache movie, this is the guy you get to shoot this movie. Uh, so he, you know, Luton's assembling a relatively uh, unknown cast and but yet again, this is so unmistakably a Luton movie right off the very beginning. It opens, as I mentioned, with with Sam Leeds shooting a guy, but we never see him actually do it. 
uh, we find out that the Sam, you know, Sam has a defense that why this guy was cheating him. Uh, but we don't actually know that. And I feel like right off the bat, we can sense that Sam Leeds is Val Luton in this movie. Because yeah. this is a guy who is not appreciated by the town that he's trying to live in. And to me, it's like, well, that's Val Luton in Hollywood. That Val Luton felt very uh, persecuted by Hollywood. And to me, that's Sam Leeds in this movie. Totally. It's also great the way we come into this with, you know, clearly they are thinking about the archetypes of these Westerns and are intent on subverting them. You know, I mean, it's the, you know, he's the gambler. There's the, the kind of tall, you know, uh, blonde mayor slash blacksmith, Joe Madden. uh, And, you know, and he, you know, he, he has all the earmarks of, you know, being the kind of stalwart hero of this, uh, while Sam leads, uh, the gambler, you know, he seems to be the disreputable guy. And at every point along the way, we somewhat subvert these expectations and we somewhat, uh, and, and we make these characters more ambiguous and their motives are, are much less obvious than, you know, than what you would normally get from what seem to be archetypes. Right. Um, there's always, uh, there's always doubles in Val Luton movies as well. There's always two characters that seem to mirror each other in one, in one way or the other. And that, again, that's present here. Uh, the mayor, the, the blacksmith slash mayor played mm-hmm. by Willard Parker. I mean, he's not, he, he's you know clearly the double of Sam Leeds in that he's not, a, he's not a bad guy. He's not, I mean, in, in a lot of other Westerns, he would be the villain. He would just yeah. be like, you're talking about, he would straight up be the bad guy who doesn't like our hero. And of course he's got romantic interests in Sally. So he's got, he's got a motivation to kick Sam out of the town because he wants to get a, he wants to be Sally's, but he wants to be her, her man. But uh, yeah. Sam is standing in the way and Sam's a much more interesting guy, but Willard, Willard Parker's not, Played by Willard Parker, excuse me. The character, um, Joe Madden. Joe Madden, yeah. He's not a bad guy, and he wants to clean up the town, which is a noble idea. I mean, they're a little crude about it, and yeah, that, that they also, want to get rid of the hookers and stuff. But right, well, but it's also that the um, that the the preacher is, you know, or the you know whatever you're supposed to call him, uh, is the um, you know is pushing for this kind of Puritan you know, uh, right. That's true. Yeah. Point of view that, you know, that, that Joe Madden, the mayor is kind of going along with and, uh, and immediately that leads to the death of all of the people that they, you know, uh, that yeah. they just, uh, you know, kind of pushed out of town. I mean the, you know, but at that it's, it's even, even that little exchange though is, is presented in a, in a, a different way. I mean, the um, the woman who who runs the brothel is uh, you know is is happy to sell the place and move on to a, to a town where uh, you know that's booming a little bit more. This town is settling down, uh, and when you know when they leave, they're they're all slaughtered, and you know that that's what precipitates the entire movie. So I mean, like everybody's actions have these kind of unintended consequences, and uh, and are just. Everything about that is so interesting to me and that the the way that that, you know, to the extent that Sam leads the the gambler character is I mean, he's he's still not a straightforward hero no matter what he's you know, he's kind of self self involved and, and shifty. But there but particularly the way that Stephen McNally, the, the actor plays him, there's this kind of deep well of humanity that comes through the character 
even when he's not, you know, he's not entirely morally above board. Right. I mean, he does, uh, again, he other risks the other guy's lives basically to show up Joe Madden. And he admits that later on. Yeah. Uh, again, which is, again, sort of an interesting color to add here. Uh, the scene you mentioned where uh, where Sam discovers the, the prostitutes have been slaughtered uh, and you see the stagecoach has been has been racked and uh, wrecked over and he sees Jehu. There's a really uh, potentially kind of grim, grisly moment where he's got the Jehu has this top hat that he wears and uh, Sam and Jehu is the only one still left alive and he tips the hat of Jehu and Jehu says, basically don't lift it. Cause they took, he says, they took my, he says, I think he says something like they took my, my, my hair. And what it means yeah. is they, they scalped him. Right. And uh, I mean, obviously this is a 1951 movie. They could not have shown such a grisly detail, but it's, it's a great, it's, it's another Val Luton touch that it's suggesting something. You're not seeing it and you have to imagine it for yourself, which is horrible. Yeah. And the idea it, of someone being scalped is Absolutely. It makes it so much worse. I, I was working on a movie uh, a while ago and, you know, we, we do a lot of previs, like, you know, animated, you know, computer animated sequences to pre-visualize the, the action sequences. And there was a moment where, uh, you know, where a character takes a gun and shoots a bunch of people, but we don't, and, and then we cut away, you know, from that moment. And everybody was like, this is too gory. This is too, you know, this is too much. And I'm just going, it's it's too much because you don't see it. It's right. more extreme because you don't see it rather than actually seeing him shoot the guys, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, like that, the, the you know, manipulating the, the audience in that way and knowing that you can suggest so much more than, you know, than, than, or that the impact of suggestion is so much different than, than actually showing stuff is everything about what, what made all of the value, you know, stuff work. Yeah. Another hallmark is, and this will, I'm bringing it up here because he leaves the movie at this point. The Clarence Muse plays Jehu. I mentioned some of his credits. Another hallmark of Luton's films is um, minorities in non-stereotypical roles, or in the very least, given more dignity than you would have seen in typical movies of the time. Um, in there's uh, African-Americans and cat people, uh, there's people of color and I walked, of course there isn't, I, because it takes place in the Caribbean is I walked with a zombie, uh, in the curse of the cat people. Yeah. A lot of the time, these African-Americans are, um, help, you know, they're maids or they're, or some, there's some sort of subservient role, but they're not stereotypical. They're not like step and fetch it, you know, bug eyed kind of uh, caricatures. They're actually given somewhat of a, of a kind of a dignity in the film. And then that was unusual for 1940s. That's something Val Luton really cared about and made sure to have that in all of his movies. And it continues here. Yeah. And I mean, there was in particular, this actress, Teresa Harris was in, uh, you know, I, I certainly in, I walked with a zombie and I believe in cat people as well. Uh, and she, you know, she exudes anything, but that kind of stereotypical yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and you know, she was in many movies through like the, you know, uh, certainly through the fifties, but, uh, it, but I think that that brings up something that you kind of can't escape when you're talking about these sort of cla- particularly these classic period westerns, which is a, a you know a, a kind of baked in racism towards uh, native people, you know, yeah. Uh, to, yeah. and like the and while they make there there are very clear attempts to to distinguish 
to to make sure that that we're thinking about that in a certain way in this movie. I mean, the uh, the Apache Scout is uh, there. There's a there's a clear moment where the you know where the 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 Welsh preacher guy kind of reveals him a, a, a level of racism towards that guy, which mm-hmm. is then you know uh, undermined by the the Union soldier. Uh, so it's brought up for us to think about very directly, textually in the in the movie. But uh, at the same time, you're still grappling with the with the idea that the uh, that the uh, the Mescalero Apache are the other, and they're the ones who are coming to to kill our heroes, and that uh, that it's you know you kind of can't get away from that, you, you know, yeah. and it's their land, so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> every every Western about attaching about attacking Indians has this kind of. You know, like, well, the Indians are, are trying to take our land from us. Well, yeah. perhaps, I mean, perhaps this know, is a, a matter of perspective. It's all like Orson Welles' comment about, you know, you have a happy ending. It depends where you end your story. You sure. know? <laughs> like, well, you're kind of coming in on the second act here. You're yeah. sort of skipping the first part where the white people took the land from the Indians in the in the first place. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that is sort of baked into and I think it is something that makes it uncomfortable, Westerns uncomfortable. I think yeah. just as a, you know, as somebody who, can, you know, just thinks about this kind of stuff, you yeah. know. And uh, and I, I guilt read a whole lot about uh, Native American culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, <laughs> you know uh, I highly recommend this book called An American Genocide about the uh, about the uh, Native people of California. It's a, oh, wow. Our former governor, Jerry Brown, would go around uh, um, recommending this book. And I read it, and it's, it's heartbreaking, but, you know, but sort of necessary, I think, particularly living in, in California. Wow, okay. uh, but the, but I, I, but that said, you know, everything is uh, complex and, and looking back at things from the past will always be difficult in some way. And, and grappling with the difficulty of it is uh, the important part rather than just glossing it over, I think. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the Reverend character played by Arthur Shields. There, he has, he's got a great moment. He's kind of a little on the slime. He's like he seems like he 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 knows kind of what he's doing, and I think he's manipulating Mayor Joe a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's this there's this great moment I think where um, Sam Leeds gets off like a really good shot from very far away, and he pegs. I think he takes out takes out one of the Apaches from very far away. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a great shot, and uh, you know they sort of thank and they say, "Oh my God, thank God that I, I got him." And Reverend Griffin basically thanks God. Yes, the shot, and he's like, you know, we have to thank the Lord that your bullet connected with him. Like, right. No, it was like, just no, Sam Leeds. I'm pretty sure that it was. I'm pretty sure it was me. Yeah, yeah. Why are you giving God credit for me picking off the the Apache here? That is <laughs> terribly fair. Um, one of the again, one of the things that seems so un, when I first heard of this movie, that seems so implausible that it would work because, of course, so much of Val Luton's movies take place in. Uh, I mean, I walk with a well. Okay. There are exceptions. I Walk with the Zombies is an exception. The Leopard Man is an exception. But a lot, a, a lot of Val Luton's other movies take place in cityscapes, you know, looming mm-hmm. cities. Cat People takes place in modern New York City. And uh, Curse of the Cat People takes place sort of in the suburbs. The Seventh Victim, one of the reasons I love it, is that it's a cult movie that takes place in New York City, which would make, makes a great double feature of Rosemary's Baby, by the way. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. But you don't necessarily think of the, the, the range, you know, the, 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 the Western expanse as being an imposing uh, topography. And yet it is because Spanish boot is in the middle of nowhere. And it is surrounded by this very ominous mountainscape on all sides. And so you realize, well, if you want privacy, it's probably a great place to live. But if you run into trouble, you're cut off. You're nowhere near anybody. 
And between uh, Hugo uh, Hugo Friganese or Friganese, I want to say Friganese. I'm going to try and get that right. Between the director and then Luton and then the cinematography of Charles Boyle, you do get that sense of there's these shots of Sam Leeds as he's taking his horse around, and you just hear the drums. Mm-hmm. You just hear and and you never see them, and it, it really is very Val Luton-esque in that you know through the music, through the drums of this impending doom waiting for you out in the mountains, but you're never seeing it. And again, that's another Val Luton thing. You don't see it. You, there is a, the occasional cutaway to some hands, you know, rapping on a drum. But other than that, they're kind of this inhuman force. And it does make, it does make the West, it does make the West, the, the mountains feel imposing. It's scary because you are so far away from any help whatsoever. And that, again, that's a very loud Val Lutney touch. Absolutely. And also, I'm, part of the reason that that's so striking when you look at, look at the other Val Luton movies is because those RKO movies are literally entirely stage-bound. There's no, yeah. There are no yeah. exteriors, right? Yep. And so, um, you know, even in, uh, you know, The Leopard Man takes place in New Mexico, but there's no New Mexico in it. No. Right? They, <laughs> yeah. There's, it's, uh, you know, it's the corner of, you know, Gower and, and Melrose, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's just on a stage. The, uh, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, that 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 is that is certainly a very stark difference, and then he approaches it exactly as you say with this uh, with a way of taking these big broad expanses and making that feel oppressive through you know uh, through the use of the drums and the suggestion, and even when uh, when they ultimately barricade themselves inside the church when uh, when the Apache uh, um, invade the town that. The town burns down, but or, but we don't. We see nothing of that. Yeah, we see yeah. only the high windows in the in the church and the red coming through. Oh and man, it is so much more effective than if we had a bunch of you know dodgy second unit shots of uh, you know or picked up from some other movie of a, right. a of a town right. burning down. You know, right B roll of a western town yeah, burning down. Yeah, and I think that is what any other B level producer would go. They're like, well, there's a town burning down, and we. You know, and there was a shot from, you know, uh, you know, danger at, you know, Apache Gulch. Yeah. <laughs> we could just use right. that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but they, Luton and uh, Friganesa thought about it in a way that how do we use our limitations to be more effective? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, th- when I Sam, when I first saw this movie, uh, I will admit the first this movie's only uh, like 73 minutes. I mean, yeah, yeah. very short movie. I yeah. mean, it was meant to be part of a double bill back then. And this sure. was a, a B production. And it was, you know, back then movies were that short. That way you could get a whole evening's entertainment in like basically three and a half hours or something like that. But uh, I will admit when I first watched it, uh, the opening, like the first half hour, I felt was a little on the dull side. I, I didn't quite see all the Luton touches. I was just like, ah, this just kind of seems like a standard Western uh, and then we get to this standoff, and yeah. that is where uh, it re- the movie is just to me it becomes next level uh, because they yeah as you said they have this this hold up in the church and this is everything that Val Luton you see everything Val Luton could have done in any sort of uh, drama any sort of genre that would that features any sort of action sequence or some sort of risk. Uh, he, you said this is what he could do because this church set is amazing. I mean, why would you ever build a church like this uh, with these giant stone walls with windows that are what fifteen feet? 
yeah. off the ground, but yet they're not they're not fortified in any way. They don't have glasses, and they're just open. Yeah. So it it and they even point out it basically allows anyone who wants to get in the perfect view to attack, and those inside almost leaving leaving them completely helpless. And it is really a fantastic. And the, it's the third act of the film it takes place all in this church, and it is unreal how great this sequence is because as you said you hear the town burning and every so often one of the one of our our, our the western the spanish bootians will will <laughs> climb up to the window to look outside and then all of a sudden an apache like comes out of nowhere like they're a romero zombie and yeah. it'll be like ah! and attacks the guy and you're just like holy shit you know, you're like and, this is real danger here and when the apaches a- actually do invade and, and leap through the windows and they're like painted head to toe in these oh, primary man. colors like yeah. red and green and it's just so like after you know it's such a you know i mean this is the the luton version of of color as well this is the only color movie he ever made and yep. you know and so everything leading up to it is muted and doesn't it isn't it, you know isn't employing any bold colors it's going with a, with earth tones and, and naturalism and then when things get intense, we have the red through the windows. The the Apache are painted these bright colors. They're like the you know these almost supernatural characters. It's it, it becomes expressionistic and like and I, I, it's it's so enormously effective. Oh man, and I don't think we get a single close up of any of the Apaches. And again, yeah. you could argue, well, that's make dehumanizing them. And okay. As we already talked about, that's baked into any Western at this point. But I also felt that that was incredibly effective in that they are not, uh, I mean, they talk about murdering the chief. They talk about the chief has died, but we never see him. And it makes them kind of this, like I said, it's like a Rosero Romero zombie like force where they are now They're They're something else. They're not just regular people. They're this kind of, mystical force that can seemingly scale walls attack at will and when they lum when they when they lunge into the frame there's this kind of frenetic activity where we don't even really get a good look at them for the most part as they come in and start stabbing people or whatever and some of them do die in the attempt but they don't even seem to care it doesn't seem to stop any of them it is like zombies like you kill a zombie and the other zombies don't notice nor do they care yeah, and, and, there's a, it, and there's also a point where all the lights in there go out, where oh, you know, where everything, God. you know, where where we're literally looking at a black screen and this stuff is happening. Yep. Like it's it's enormously effective. And also, I think what you brought up about not ever seeing the chief, I think, is really interesting and effective in a where everybody talks about him all the yep. way through the movie. And yet, you know, he's, you know, but there's never you, you know, you would think that the some basic dramatic writing thing would say well that guy has to meet our main character at right. some point <laughs> right, right right and in fact that never happens and it's not it doesn't lose effectiveness in any way in some ways it's more effective yeah oh man it is it's a, this this whole final sequence is just and again, you, 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 Val Luton managed to, to put this across. You see it and you go, yeah, wow, this is a Val Luton movie, even though he didn't direct it. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, presumably he wasn't even necessarily on the set. We don't, I don't know that. I don't know whether he was I, or wasn't. I don't know that either, but in general, everybody talks about it as, 
he was he was very very involved in everything about preparing the the film and uh you know but he would let he'd back off and let the director do do their job when, amazing, when it came to actually shooting am, the movie amazing so and even in, and even during this final sequence there were touches that again go back to within this within this larger framework of this final sequence is very Val Luton. Even within that, there are little touches. There's a sequence where, our, of course, there's a bunch of children, and they're scared out of their wits because uh, the town people basically start to accept that we're going to die. They, they, we're yeah. not going to make it out of this. And, of course, you don't want to have to tell children that. Right. And there's a scene where Sam uh, does like a magic trick where he does the whole coin in the ear thing. And, again, that reminds one of, uh, like in the Curse of the Cat people where you've got this child involved in this sort of really scary sequence, but yet the child's innocence is protected. Even within this framework of this horror, the children are protected. And that's something apparently Luton cared very much about. And you see it in a, several of his films. And but, you have that here where they're teaching, they're trying to distract these kids from the horror of that they're facing by teaching them like a little, showing them a little kind of cheesy magic trick. Totally. But I think it's, it's not, I mean, it definitely, everything you're saying is, Definitely the case, but it's also that in a broader sense, there is this sort of deep vein of humanism that runs through yeah. the Val Luton movies where, you know, the, these aren't really like, even though, you know, several of the horror movies deal with these sort of existential things and stuff, it's, uh, th- there's, there's something enormously human about all of them. And they're not, they're not really nihilistic. I mean, maybe the bend of the seventh victim is a little <laughs> nihilistic. <laughs> yeah, I run but, to know. death. <laughs> but, uh, but still, you know, I, like, uh, it's, you know, and, but it's also about contrast. So, yep. I mean, I think that the, um, that that runs through this and the way that throughout this whole movie, the way that we, we set up characters and those characters interactions shift and they, uh, and their, their relationships shift over the course of the movie multiple times throughout it, which is super dynamic right that's yeah. great drama stuff right and great dramatic writing and it's great that uh, and the complete opposite of a one note b uh western where we say this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and they're gonna like fight it out over the course of it right right i mean leads leads and and, uh, and madden eventually have to kind of come to a uh, reconciliation with each other because of the chips are really down here. By the way, they at one point uh, a character sings a nursery rhyme called "Oranges and Lemons," which features this grotesque line about "Here comes a chopper to chop off your head," which is, you know, wow, that's a nursery rhyme. That's yeah. the same nursery rhyme sung by Kim Hunter in the Seventh Victim. Right. So Although again, it's they, all... <laughs> they literally cut away from the part the chopper to chop yeah, up the head line right before they <laughs> <laughs> they sing that. Yeah. So like. <laughs> Oh my lord! Uh, and then uh, there is a, and I'm not going to say who dies. There, one of the characters dies during this uh, this final sequence. Again, I want people to see this movie. We'll get into that uh, in a moment. But there is a death scene in this movie, which is, uh, I find, I, I literally, when I first saw this movie, gasped in that its inventiveness and the way it uses sound. Uh, again, I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie, which is virtually going to be everybody except me and Gabriel. But there's a death scene in this movie where Luton and and the director uses sound to suggest something, and then we get an accompanying image, and we are our characters are faced with a grotesque piece of horror yeah. uh, as this one character sort of says something to our other characters. They don't listen. 
and everybody pays for yeah. them not listening. And it is, it's an amazing sequence and it's really grim for what is, again, it's sort of like, you know, what a lot of people thought they were getting was a standard, you know, pro forma Western. And it's, yeah, now I'm struggling to not to talk about the end without talking about the end. But the yeah. uh, but like there there are also uh, you know just the 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 very final thing uh, is oh maybe I shouldn't even talk about it at all. But but basically <laughs> it's very point of view driven, and it, they uh, they're able even if there, there's a somewhat cliche thing that happens at the end of the movie, the uh, the way that it's presented is so much different than the way that that something would normally be presented, where we're just we're looking through flames, we're looking through the door of the church to see their salvation coming, and uh, and it's uh, and it's it's done in an interesting and effective way that's. Yeah like what I think about all the time is like a visual storyteller, both in comics and working on films is about your point of view and, and about, you know, the character's point of views and revealing things through character and through point of view. And that's everything about what Val Luton is. And that's everything about why I love these movies. Yeah. Uh, this was released, uh, by, accepted by universal. It made, according to, uh, IMDb, it made 1.4 million, which kind of sounds like pretty good money for a, well, it a was, D Western. According to Luton, it was the cheapest Technicolor movie made at the time. Okay. Uh, for three hundred and ninety-five thousand dollars. Wow! So, uh, it looks great. I, although he said uh, he said that uh, that technically uh, it's 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 the cheapest Technicolor movie made with real people. Apparently, Columbia made a movie about a horse for less money. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, um, but uh, yeah, so what did you say? It made one point one point four million. Which I, so that's that that would be uh, you know a financially successful movie i mean the uh i don't know about what the marketing cost would have been back then but now the you know the metric is you take the budget and you double it because uh um that's what you spend on uh advertising and uh, they used to call it prints and advertising but prints don't exist anymore mm-hmm. and uh the um so you know if you you double the budget of the movie and and so the movie has to make that back to break even so making more than that for a tiny B Western would be, you know, uh, reasonably profitable. And then everything worked out well for Val Luton, and he went on to have an amazing career after this, right? Yes, of course. He was showered with Oscars, and uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, Val Luton died before this film's release at the ripe old age of 46. 46? Oh, wait. Oh, I'm 46. Oh, well, I'm, I'm older than Val Luton. Is, <laughs> I've lived longer than Val Luton, which feels very weird to me. He passed away on March 14th, 1951, before Apache Drums got released. So this makes it yeah, his and final in film. The, in the New York Times review of this, it's, it references that he, oh. he recently passed away. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I, so, so on, on Fade Out, I like to ask, you know, was this intended as the final film? Obviously not. Val Luton... Uh, hoped he had a long career ahead of him. He was someone that had been racked with stress. He talked about, apparently uh, his, his children have talked about that he suffered from terrible insomnia and would stay up all night, which is part of the reason he got as much done as he did. Uh, cranking out, I mean, I think in 1943, cranked out like, five films. I mean, it's just yeah, extraordinary. I, mean, extraordinary. I don't know. I, it's like, I don't know the specifics of this, but David O. Selznick, who he previously worked for, is notorious for his amphetamine use. And, you know, <laughs> uh, so, like, 
it, it's possible that had something to do with it, right? Okay. Yeah, maybe I mean, so. I, you know, not not casting aspersions on Val Luton, who I idolize, but you know, it's it's certainly possible. Maybe so. He <laughs> had a series of heart attacks towards the the end that you know, some of which he yeah. sought no medical attention for. So yeah, you know, it, it's I mean. The sad thing in a lot of ways is that he talked about this experience at Universal being a very good experience. Right, and, right. Uh, and, a, and a freeing one where he went back to something like his RKO days where he had the control and was able to, you know, assert that over a small thing and have the freedom over uh, a small picture. And, you know, and I think it really shows in the movie. And I, I and it's just sad that, well, in, in right after this, he actually... He had the option to continue with Universal, but took a job with Stanley Kramer's new company. Right, uh, he'd been he'd been friendly with, and you know, it was it was title wise, it was a it was a smaller uh, job. It was he was a sort of he would have been a sort of associate producer, but he was promised more money. He was promised these great projects to work on, and then when he actually went to take the job, that didn't none of that turned out to quite be the case. It was less money than he thought. The budgets were less than he thought, and the um, you know, and his uh, he and he was kind of even reduced in rank as far as his credit, but uh, didn't much matter. Uh, I uh, you know he he didn't he didn't live uh, long enough to actually do anything for them. But the I do it is hard not to think though if somehow things had just been a little different if uh, you know if he had gotten me- the medical care he needed if whatever. Uh, and he had stayed at Universal, we could conceivably be talking about, uh, you know, this kind of second slate of very influential Val Luton movies, the, uh, you know, the Val Luton Westerns. Yeah. yeah. One of the uh, the chapters in the Bansek book uh, that I like a lot is, I think it's called The Sincerest Form of Flattery, which talks about other films post-Luton that seem to have a direct influence from him and they talk about like the thing the 1950s the thing which is uh you know a movie that doesn't show the monster other than one brief scene and you see about like it would have been interesting whether yeah would he continue with the westerns would the horror genre have benefited from Luton because at that point it would have transitioned to as Bella Lugosi talks about it it would giant bug giant spiders you know like right. would that have worked would Val Luton been able to produce you know the deadly mantis or something like we don't show the mantis I mean would would that have worked for Val Luton I, I, don't, I don't believe don't you can I, I don't think you can make it I mean you know there's this big sort of uh you know or at least in the past when people cared about movies there was a there was a kind of uh you know back and forth about you know, there's this kind of Hitchcockian idea of not seeing things and uh, and then an idea of showing things explicitly. Somebody, a, a director like David Cronenberg would argue, well, I can't I can't suggest a, a character's head exploding. I, you know, <laughs> you just have to show it. Right. I, I'm you know, but he also says you, you can't uh, you can't uh, you can't show someone's thoughts as they're walking down the street. And that's something that I actually totally disagree with. I think that the, the form of filmmaking and the juxtaposition of images is about creating ideas in the audience's head. And to a certain extent, I do think that you can, you know, you can show what's inside somebody's head when they're walking down the street. But the, uh, but I think that that, you know, on that tip, you can't really, you can't suggest a giant bug. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you got, you kind of have to just show it. Uh, so if you're promising a 50 foot woman, you got to show a 50 foot woman. You can't, but I mean, there, then there were, you know, there have been other movies, you know, uh, like in, I think it was like early 60s, 61. There's this movie called nighttime that Curtis Harrington directed, a 
very explicit. It's like almost like a Valutin fan film, you know. Uh, it, the tone of it is so close, and uh, you know, it's a, it's sort of about a mermaid. Uh, and and De- young Dennis Hopper is in it. It's they shot it in Venice. There's a lot of great or in um, Venice, California. And there's a lot of great uh, sort of location work and stuff in it. But uh, so I, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but I, I would recommend checking that out if you if, if you end up going on the Val Luton deep dive as well. Yeah, there's lots of other stuff. There's a, in the book he talks about Curse of the Demon, which was Jacques Turner continuing yes. on. Yeah. I mean, there, there there were influences. Again, Luton clearly did not intend this to be his final film, but it ended up uh, being so. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of its legacy, unfortunately, Apache Drums doesn't have much of one. Uh, when the when the box this is it this is it right here yeah this is it i was talking about it only people ever talking about this i i did find some very very insightful reviews online if you just type in apache drums and like you know val luton on on google you'll find some very interesting blog reviews and a lot of them are the 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 reviews have all of of, are they're all of a similar piece where it's someone saying i went into this thinking it's going to be a standard western because it's apache drums and you know that's the name and it's 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 a bunch of people I've never heard of. And then, holy, cr- holy hell, this is way more interesting than I would have imagined. And now I can see why Val Luton was it. You know, it's that kind of thing where you just, you go into it and you're not expecting a lot. And then you start going, oh, this is, wow, this is a lot. There's a lot more going on here than I would have expected for a 71 yeah. minute 1951 Western starring nobody in particular. And so that's, that's the film's legacy. Even when they did the box set, as I mentioned a couple of years ago, it's only as horror films. Uh, Mademoiselle Fifi was not part of it. Youth Runs Wild, and neither is this. Partly because it's they weren't RKO. But the, and you mentioned earlier, this film was originally on Amazon Prime. It's not anymore, unfortunately. Why? Why would what 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 rights issue could have come up over Apache <laughs> drums that would make somebody say we got to take that down? Like what? You know, what I think it's probably just they. You know, they just license stuff for a period of time. And maybe so. You know, I mean, now, I think that's all. Yeah. You can get the film though. Uh, on a website, I had to go because I had to go and find it to, to watch it again. There is a website. It's called the Film Collector Society of America, thefilmcsa.com. And they produce basically on demand DVDs for very hard to find films. How this is legal, I don't exactly it's, know. It's gray, uh, Mark. It's gray, it's Mark. Gray it's Mark. About, you know, it's about people not, you know, it's like the people who own it not caring enough to you know, right. run it down. That um, said, it was the, for both of us, it was the only way we could actually watch it. It was the only film, way we could but. see this film. I ordered it, and I will say, they delivered. Uh, it's very bare bones. Uh, I got, but I will say, I got the film. I think it was like $14 or something with shipping. I got the film on DVD. Uh, it comes in a sleeve that is a generic sleeve. It's not like it's the poster or anything. And it, the, the disc is literally handwritten with marker, Apache drums. But it's the movie. It's yeah. the complete movie. It was taped off of television, some sort of uh, cable channel when they were running Westerns. And it is the only way to get this movie, but it's serviceable. Is it, I mean, the pictures, uh, the aspect ratio is a little off. It's a little, a little squeezed um, there. So it's not exactly the picture that you would have seen if you'd seen the film in any other format. Nevertheless, it is the only way you can see Apache drums. And I highly recommend that you do. I think it's a great movie. It's an interesting movie and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And so for those of you listening to this, I'm sure virtually nobody listening to this has seen this movie. If you are interested in seeing Apache Drums, leave a comment on our website for this episode at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and I will pick one commenter at random 
And that person will receive a DVD of Apache Drums, courtesy of me and the film CSA. It's going to be their version. I'm going to send it to you. I will just pick one person. And if you want to see this movie, leave a comment on the website to this episode, and you could win a copy of Apache Drums, because I want as many people to see this movie as possible. The, the Val Luton horror movies are available, uh, especially the big ones, Cat People. I mean, Cat People was even remade in the 80s, for Pete's sakes. Uh, but, I mean, I Walked With a Zombie, The Seventh Victim. These films are not super easy to get, but you can get them. But Apache Drums has just gone down the memory hole. And I'd like to resuscitate it as best I can do with my little show here. So, like I said, if you want to potentially see Apache Drums, Leave a comment on fireandwaterpodcast.com and you can have a chance to win a DVD of this fine movie. So, uh, Gabriel, is there anything else we want to say about Val Luton or Apache Drones as we wrap up here? Um, I just want to say, like, the one one little thing that I noticed and just I'm a very, very much I approach things, you know, well, character based, but in a very visual way. And the fact that this movie opens with a shot through the uh the doors, the doors being from darkness. <laughs> looked looked a doors, little familiar. <laughs> doors of the church opening, and then it, uh, but it, it ends with you know with basically this, a similar thing. It's bookended by this mm-hmm. visual that is thought. That is that is the the making of an entire movie. That's not a a sort of haphazard ramshackle B movie that people are just yeah. cranking out, cranking that's, out in five days, kind of. Thing. Yeah, that's thought about the the entirety of a film, and like, and I think that that that's that's what makes it so impressive. Absolutely, said so it's 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 a sad capstone to a career cut short. But, uh, I mean, you know, uh, he, he made, he left an indelible impression on filmmaking and, uh, you know, they, they are, he he also made more good movies than a lot of people make in a much. Oh, his batting average is unreal. I mean, if you're really going to go by that, yeah, he made, he produced what, like 11 films total. And you've got a couple of masterpieces in there. That's hard to do one masterpiece, let alone a couple. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing. Val Luton is just a great, fascinating interesting guy gave birth to a lot of great Hollywood careers and made a lot of amazing movies. So, well, I mean, Gabriel, wow, this was super fun. I never, I knew that you were a big fan of, of Val Luton. You've read, you've actually read, what's that other book you read about, about uh, Val Luton? I haven't read the yet. The other book is by, uh, Oh, Val Luton, the reality of terror by Joel E. Siegel. That is correct. Yes. That's from your own tweet. You took a picture of the book. So, uh, I mean, was that, how's that as a read? I've not, I have not read that, but I, it's actually another excellent book. Uh, the, you know, that, that goes into a a certain amount of different detail than, uh, you know, than the, uh, the McFarland one and, uh, um, McFarland press or whatever put out the other one. Uh, and, uh, I it's, but it's pretty obscure. I can't even remember how I got my hands on it. It may have been like at, a comic convention or like a rare book thing or something like that, because it's, it's a relatively obscure book. Maybe it's very, but I got it a long time ago. So maybe, maybe it's a lot easier to get copies now. I want to, I want to search it out because like I said, I really enjoyed the Banzac book and I want to learn more about Val Luton. I can, I'd love to learn more about the, any of these movies. Cause they're just, they're just fascinating. So uh, that's awesome. Again, thank you so much for, for coming on fade out. This was really uh, fantastic. Uh, why don't you tell people what you're, you're on a podcast? Why don't you tell people where they can find that podcast? Oh yeah. I have no idea where you can find my podcast. <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, uh, I do a podcast every week uh, called to the outer limits. It's about the sixties outer limits show. Uh, John Suntress of word balloon, uh, you know, who, uh, who I've, I've done a bunch of comics oriented podcasts with. He and I do, uh, do this uh, that basically sprung out of uh, the pandemic and it sprung out of me 
sitting here, uh, you know, I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to be working all through, all, you know, for the last year. But um, uh, but at one point I tweeted, why doesn't somebody make a podcast about the, the 60s outer limits so that I can listen to it while I'm working? <laughs> you know, and uh, and then uh, John's like, we should just do it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. I want somebody to do it for me. Uh, but I relented. And so uh, we we just uh, recorded our 30th episode of it. Nice. Uh, and uh, so uh, despite the fact that I am a, uh, a person who makes things, I'm not a commentator, uh, uh, I, it turns out I am a commentator and a podcaster now. There you go. Uh, so uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's available on uh, John's Word Balloon YouTube channel and through the, uh, you know, through his podcast, Word Balloon podcast feed. So, um uh, so it, it's been an interesting thing. I, I like that show a lot, and there's a lot. Uh, th- there's actually a lot of weird crossover, not only with you know like actors who've been in Valut and stuff, but the kind of the general tone of it being uh, we're going to take this show that's a you know that's a kind of science fiction show and make it something much more ambitious and much more interesting uh, than it would appear to be from from the outside. Absolutely, I've only, I've only seen a handful of Outer Limits, but uh, man, there are there's some real head trippy ones in those. So <laughs> absolutely, and also you know Conrad Hall, the legendary director of photography, was uh, you know was cinematographer on several of the early episodes. It was produced by Joseph Stefano, written and produced by Joseph Stefano, who wrote Psycho. Wrote for Psycho, right. You know, it, it, there there's a lot of uh, and a lot of that, and a lot of the actors who would then become very important in the seventies. Uh, the most recent, the the episode we're doing this week was written by Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown. Wow. There, there's, you know, there's just a lot of interesting threads through it that, you know, not only make the show itself interesting, but make it, give it a context for, you know, where those people went later in Hollywood. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. So, of course, uh, everybody, uh, if you want to follow this show, all our episodes are on the website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're always talking movies over on Twitter at Fade Out Pod. And if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, you can just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is if you name checked on a show of your choice. So if you really love Fade Out, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and let us know. Thanks so much. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with another Fade Out before you know it. But until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to Fade Out.